radio for the Agile community. www.agile.fm Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Agile FM. Today I have two guests here, uh, Christian Fairweis and uh, Johannes Schartel. Um, they both wrote, together with Barry Oberon, a book called The Zombie Scrum Survival Guide, uh, which was uh, released in November. Uh, it was released in November 2020. Why not on Halloween? That would have been a perfect release date for the Zombie Survival Guide on the 31st of October. But you came a few days after that. But first and foremost, welcome to the show. Welcome to Agile FM. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. Uh, I, th I think to, to answer your first question, uh, we won't name any names, but there was a big publisher involved <laughs> in our book. And not all publishers are very agile. So that wasn't possible. That was also our goal. But, you know, we, we took what we could. And that was November. November, yeah. But yeah. just about that time frame. So it's been a few uh, months. Congrats congratulations for the release uh, that is part of the professional Scrum series, that book. I think those are like five, six books or something like that in that series. So that's really cool. Barry cannot be with us today on this show, but I, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the uh, survival guide. Uh, it hit the shelves. It's available. You're shipping it like crazy. Um, so before we even get started, not everyone here on uh, on that show might be familiar with that term zombie scrum. What is that and uh, why is it bad? Yeah, well, it's it's pretty bad, right, Johannes? Oh, <laughs> I think awful. Yeah. Um, Well, I think I think just a thumbnail description for Zombie Scrum is that it it's something that looks like Scrum from a distance. So you have all the events, the artifacts, the the, the accountabilities that you would expect, but there's no beating heart, and that usually manifests as in a complete lack of working software. Stakeholders are not involved. There is no no autonomy for the team to make any decisions of their own about the product that they're working on. And nobody seems to care about it or try to improve anything. And I think that's sort of the thumbnail description of Zombie Scrum. Right. So, what was the trigger for you guys writing it? I mean, it's like, what did you guys observe out there? I mean, you're both uh, uh, training. Uh, uh, Christian, you're a professional Scrum trainer. Johannes, you're an agile coach. So, I'm pretty sure you guys see a lot of Scrum out there uh, when working with clients. And uh, What was the reason? What triggered the book and uh, why you said something has to be done? Well, several years ago, we talked about what we were seeing in the industry and where we could make some kind of impact. So that's how our collaboration got started. And you know, with that deep question of what would actually make a difference and what we both saw and we later got Barry in, involved mm -hmm. was that um, Agile has... Um, reached that kind of maturity stage. So when we started out, it was just this weird thing that some people did and would never really catch on. Uh, but then suddenly it did and um, got really successful. So what we saw though, was that there were all these books on Scrum and Agile and uh, they were all describing this perfect future and all the benefits you, can, you could get from Scrum. But mm. most people we talked to they felt like they were trapped in a system that didn't deliver on that promise and it felt lifeless to them uh, and they also felt stuck and not able to change the whole system so that's kind of what we identified that these people really needed some help 
And um, while everybody was just talking about this, this is how you do it. And this is what it looks like in the perfect world. That wasn't really addressing the, the issue that people were facing, that this was, this was not the way that was playing out in their environment. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that we thought it's kind of weird that no one is actually talking about it. Um, because with our clients, every time we mentioned that and also said, it's not just you, it's something we see more often. There was this big relief, like, oh, really? Um, let's, you know, I thought it was just our organization, but maybe, you know, it's a, uh, a bigger thing and other people are also having the same issues. Um, and once we, we gave it a name, that's really when it took off. So we were kind of hesitant at first because the metaphor can be, yeah, maybe confronting to people or maybe even offensive, but uh, we tested it and the, um, the response was just absolutely overwhelmingly positive. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and like I said, often when just the fact that we gave it a name gave people the ability to talk about it and also feel connected to other people. And that's, that's when we knew we had to go deeper. And after some workshops we did and talks at conferences, we thought, you know, we should really write a book about this. Yeah. And I think that that was something that we actually did somewhere in 2015 or 2016. That's when we started developing this idea. Right. Um, and to add to Johannes explanation of why we wrote the book, it's also that both Johannes, me and Barry also, by the way, we have experienced Scrum in teams where it works really well, where stakeholders are involved, where it's a lot of fun. Um, I, I've, I've been with the team for nine years and it, it worked there. I mean, sure, we made mistakes and we did some stupid stuff, some of which is in the book, by the way, um, but, but it worked. And when I started looking, visiting other teams, I saw it wasn't always the case that it worked or not at all. And that kind of surprised me because I wish for all teams to feel what it's like to work with Scrum effectively and see how it actually helps them rather than be annoying or frustrating. And I think that that's also a big drive behind the book to show that it is possible and that you can do it. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, right? So in the beginning of, of Scrum, like in the early 2000s, there were books about how to get started with Scrum and, and so on, right? An avalanche of books of Scrum introductions, et cetera. This is, this is a turning point, right? Because now we're talking about how to do Scrum right, right? So there's a lot of people that have been trained, they have been gone through training programs, et cetera, right? And now they're applying it and they're falling into this, into this, uh, you know, zombie kind of behavior here, right? What are some, some patterns? So let's say there's a listener out there listening to us right now. And he's just like, I don't know if I'm doing a zombie scrum or not, right? Like, what is it like a pattern? Maybe you can describe one of those patterns that you would say that is an indicator for you running a zombie scrum, oh, sure. right? Mm -hmm. Sure. I, I can take the first one and you almost can probably add more to that. Um, but I think the most important one that we see is that there is no working software at the end of the sprint. And mm -hmm. if you put this in Scrum framework terminology, it's there's no done increment that's that's released mm -hmm. at the end or near the end of the sprint to stakeholders. Um, and in, in the case of severe zombie Scrum, that never actually happens or maybe a year down the road. Um, maybe there are releases happening to an internal staging environment, but it's not actually going to customers that are paying for the product. It's not actually going to the people that are going to use it. It's just going to internal stakeholders, whoever they are. So this lack of working software at the end of a sprint for us, that's one of the biggest indicators that you're probably dealing with zombie scrum. Mm -hmm. Right. And um, 
I just want to mention that we have a survey that you can take at survey.zombiescrum.org, which is going to help you evaluate. And uh, we uh, we designed the survey a while back and it also kind of informed how we structured the book. So we have five big sections. First one is, what is Scrum and does your challenge actually match what, what Scrum has to offer? Because that's usually where it kind of starts. Yeah. Then what um, Christian just said uh, about shipping and getting the whole... Uh, empirical process. So, what is called? <laughs> I often mix this up. So, um, empirical process control uh, loop started, and the uh, you know transparency inspection adaptation that can only happen when you actually have a product that you can inspect. And if you don't have that, then the whole thing doesn't really happen. Right. Um, and you just, Christian, you just touched briefly on it. Um, so, what you want to do in in Scrum and with Scrum is to deliver something that stakeholders actually need, which is interesting that um, you know, when you talk to zombie Scrum teams, they believe that is what they're doing. But one of the questions is, you know, who are your stakeholders? Uh, and that, that kind of gets this whole discussion started, like where does the need for your product actually arise? Um, who benefits from it? Who invests in it? Mm -hmm. um, and we often find that zombie Scrum teams are far removed from the real source of that need um, or the, the value that you, uh, that you want to ship, right? Yeah. And uh, with that distance, there's, yeah, the, um, there's, again, there's a disconnect between if you ship, you, need, you get feedback if you're actually delivering value, but you also need to get from the right people. Uh, and and the, the Scrum doesn't really explain what stakeholders are. So yeah. people often assume that it's bill from accounting or you know someone inside the company that they kind of put in place as the stakeholder because often they they are the people who can cause trouble for the team uh, if they don't do what they are supposed to do but that doesn't really mean that yeah that that is where the product starts or where um where the whole loop kind of closes mm -hmm. I think that's that's an interesting thing, right? So uh, what what you said, uh, Christian, on on the done, or you both talking about the the thing that is completed by the end of a of a sprint, right? That done increment. It's casually said, but this is this is a tough thing to do, right? So this is, not, is. A, that's not an easy thing to do, uh, to be totally honest, right? And uh, there might be a lot of people out there right now saying like, oh, we have we have something done by the end of the sprint, but that's not like we've got something done. This is like this is a done increment, right? This is potentially shippable. Um, and that's where we see a lot of uh, zombies. So this is not easy to do, right? And we'll definitely make that, uh, Johannes, thanks for that uh, link reference. We're gonna make that link reference also available on the show page. So people can just click on it and, and assess themselves uh, against zombie. Now, um, this is not a rare occasion out there in the industry, right? To be a zombie team. I think that's a fair statement, right? So if you're, think, if you're listening right now and says, oh, that is not applied to me, you have any kind of percentage or anything like where you would say we're dealing with X amount roughly? Obviously, we don't know every single team around the world doing Scrum, but do you have any indication based on the surveys you have so far? Like what's the what's the percentage of zombie versus non-zombie? That's a good question. Um, so roughly it's it's about 60% of the teams that participate in the in the Scrum team survey have quite moderate to severe zombie scrum. It's, mm -hmm. it's very hard to, to define a cutoff point, but that, that's that's one way to think of it. And most of the other teams, like the 40% other of the other teams, 
have some elements of it. Mm-hmm. And there are some teams in there that are doing really well in all areas, but that's, as you say, it's, it's, it's quite rare. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's okay too, right? It's right. The, the, the mission or what Scrum asks of teams and especially if the organizations those teams are part of, it's really hard. And in the book, we describe it as sort of exercising. Like if you start lifting weights, the first time you do it, you can maybe lift it once or twice and then you have insane muscle ache the next day. But if you do it more often, you start building the muscle to do it frequently and also increase the weights that you can lift. And it's the same with Scrum. The first few times it will be very hard to release an increment that's even close to done. Um, But the next time it will be easier and the next time it will be easier and so forth. So it's a journey and that's okay. Mm -hmm. We we just wanted to create that awareness that that is what the, that's the goal behind scrum and often people don't actually know that or they don't know how far it actually goes because there are layers of organizational dysfunction between what they perceive as good scrum and and what the theory is and it doesn't mean like everybody um has to ship daily for example mm-hmm. that's not what it means but uh, it kind of has to match the the speed of learning or the the feedback loop that you are involved in um and it makes the whole thing come alive and and that's just the knowledge um or like robbing people of that illusion that they're already doing really well uh, that is something that we were aiming for just to to create some healthy tension right just to to make people question uh and yeah question what is happening in the environment and asking the questions how far do you want to take this what is really helpful for us um how quick do we need to be um and that is definitely different for every team but just asking those questions for us that's kind of the beginning of of mm-hmm. uh, getting out of that zone right well so i mean i could play devil's advocate right now and say you know what i have i have a team that is a zombie team and um you know they're doing scrum check you know i could check off a checkbox and say like we're doing scrum and uh, we're compliant with scrum and we're doing uh we're doing uh we're doing that zombie scrum but at least i'm doing some scrum right um how would you encounter like somebody like on an executive leadership level of saying like there's some significant business loss around being a zombie team right um is, is there anything you we could make a case for like like even if you're doing a zombie uh, scrum and you you feel like hey my organization there is there's a ton of somebody scrum but at least i'm doing scrum and they're having their daily scrum and they're having all these kind of events and i can check 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 what's the business loss behind it what's the benefit of going non-zombie and 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 uh, making them survive to speak in the language of the title of the book huh? do you want to go ahead I, I can take it you go you start your own okay um well, it's difficult to put a number on it, but what we talk about in the book is that most organizations really optimize for efficiency, and that's kind of the prevailing mindset that they believe um, they set up some kind of process, get people really, really busy, and then something valuable is just going to turn out in the end. Uh, and that's usually not the case, and that is actually where scrum can be really helpful that it helps to be more effective in the sense of learning whether what you're trying to do is actually going to work uh-huh. and that doesn't only mean uh you creating more value quicker or getting more cash but it could also mean just finding out that something doesn't work and then having the ability to stop it and uh-huh. that's something that also organizations are usually not good at just saying 
we should get off this dead horse and do something else and redistribute our um, our resources to something that is more promising. Um, and so if you if you're trapped in that zombie scrum environment, that feedback mechanism is really delayed. And so you will definitely invest into things that don't return anything for a much longer time. Uh, again, this is going to be different for organizations, but I mean, I've worked with organizations, they had release cycles of nine years, for example. And um, just imagine like nine years ago, what we thought the world would, was going to look like and what it looks like now. And then just having this massive splash of software and going like, oh, this is what it is now. How helpful is that? You know, like it's if, if anything changes in the meantime, uh, you don't have the time to change it anymore. And yeah. you um, you definitely you, you won't be able to capitalize on that on that change. Nine years feels like yesterday when we started. <laughs> <laughs> so, so but, but yeah, absolutely. And it's it's let's be honest for mo for many organizations, this is the reality, right? What you described, Joe, is what a lot of organizations do. They check the boxes and we're doing scrum. So and everyone has a certificate, but hey, it's not working. So we need some other Mm -hmm. framework or light or, or certificate or something to make it work. But what we try to do in the book is something that um, I was kind of missing in many books about Scrum is that usually other books talk about the how, how what, what, what are you doing as part of Scrum? And that's really important. But why are you doing that? And how does this help the bigger picture? So what we really did put an effort into is to explain why are we actually doing Scrum? What's the advantage for the organization? Ultimately, it's about risk management, right? So if you release more frequently and you can validate those assumptions, if you don't release every nine years, but maybe start with every few months, then at least you can validate if your assumptions were correct and you're not wasting money potentially on a lot of features that no one's looking for. Right. Um, and, and ultimately, I think that's the best way to explain it to, to management, to upper management in an organization. It's going to save you money. Mm -hmm. It's going to save you a lot of effort that you don't have to spend on building something that nobody's looking for. And if you do it right, you will have happier stakeholders, happier customers. And mm -hmm. if you're a commercial organization or a non-commercial organization, that's what's keeping you alive, right? Right. Yeah, absolutely. And then also, you know, morale maybe where folks uh, might be yeah. not zombie and it's like, whoa, this is, uh, this is empowering. Talk, talking about empowering, you both are very hip on liberating structures, right? This is part of uh, of your day-to-day -day life. And uh, Johannes, you even founded the, the, the user group in, uh, in Hamburg, Germany. And uh, how important is it for teams to use, I'm not saying liberating structures, but techniques and, uh, you know, like these, uh, these micro tools in their day-to-day -day work. How important is it to use those to prevent possibly zombies from um, what's what's the connect here? Uh, yeah, I think Johannes wants me to start. <laughs> um, liberating structures are really the core of, of everything that we do. And I can speak for Barry, for me and Johannes all, all together. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not a, it's not about liberating structures as a as an approach, but it's about what they make possible. Um, and I, I think one of the th reasons why organizations get stuck in zombie scrum is because everyone's trying to solve impediments only within their own little area, like within a team or, uh, or, or in a department. But ultimately, you need to bring people together mm -hmm. and make sure that they all have a voice in 
what what actually is the problem that we're trying to solve here? Why are we not releasing frequently? Why are no stakeholders present? And then work together to overcome those challenges. And this is why liberating structures are so helpful because they make that possible to, to give everyone a voice. Everyone in the team, your stakeholders, management, the people mm -hmm. from marketing, the people from sales, get them into a room or a virtual room, use liberating structures and, and overcome those problems together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's this kind of sentiment in the agile community that you just you let people figure it out. Well, just people will talk about it and then it's going to work. But in our experience, you need something else. Um, you need to structure that interaction and, and make it actually effective. And that's that's why we like liberating structures. And like Christian said, you can use anything else. It's mainly about getting people engaged at the right time for the right kind of problems. I mean, you don't want everybody deciding everything all the time, but there are definitely parts where it is so beneficial to include more people. And especially if it's about like making sense of your own environment and tackling your own problems, uh, finding solutions for your own problems. Uh, that is where, um, especially in that whole change that Scrum kind of elicits in an organization because it, it causes tension and then you need to deal with that. Um, but you, you cannot just have that traditional model of you know, we will we need to escalate to the manager or something, but often it's really that you need the people on the ground to kind of make sense of what is happening collectively and then find solutions on their own uh -huh. and then maybe ask for, for help. But uh, yeah. we, at least I, I'm speaking for myself, but prior to liberating structures, I didn't really have the tools to actually make that happen. Sorry. It just was all, sometimes it was just like, okay, I'll just get people into the room. And then we were just arguing all the time and people were frustrated. Um, so that's kind of the gap that liberating structures filled for me. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because I, I uh, in my in my classroom activities, there was this one activity I always did, um, and uh, I had no name for it, and uh, I just did it. And uh, every time I did it, it was a great thing. And then this book came out, and uh, I was like, oh, I can't believe. Uh, let, let's take a look at this book, right? If there is this technique, and it didn't was, it was the shift and share, right? And uh, so it's like, oh, it has a name now. It's a shift and share, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, so I find, and that is, uh, it's good that this, these patterns are proven in a way that it's, this is not only me doing something in the classroom, right? Or in a project, but it's it's also others found useful and actually picked up somehow and created it. And then and then you get this confidence into your facilitation too, right? As a, as a facilitator, is. this is not something I just came up with. This is done many, many times and by many different people. and whatever the, the root is of that technique. Yeah, and I, I think it's also good to mention that the, the creators of Liberating Structures, uh, Keith McCandless and Henry Lipmanovich, they came up with this 20 years ago, almost, I think, even even longer, I think, in South America. Yeah. And that was where the first experiments took place. It's been around for a long time, but yeah. it never made the, it never connected to the, the Agile community. And I, I think well, we were probably not the first, but Johannes and I, we, Johannes had, you read the book, I think, right? And you shared it and we were excited about it, started trying it out. Uh, I, in, in 2014, I met someone in the States who were, he was from Seattle and he was actually working with Keith and he introduced me and, and then it kind of took off and that's how I got introduced. But it was really about like when I had the first experience of what that was and it was actually in a phone conference. Uh, but it worked so well that I just thought, what is this? Uh, because yes. we had been talking for, I think, 45 minutes. It wasn't a one-hour call. 
it went nowhere everybody was just like hmm yeah okay so what else could we talk about and then the guy just said okay let's do this and then let's do this and then let's do that and was within the, the the last 15 minutes was like 100 times more productive than the the first 45 <laughs> exactly. um and, and i yeah people you just need to experience that um and it, it just helps uh teams also to to it helps them feel productive and effective while collaborating because it can be really frustrating when you have some kind of scrum master or agile coach who always wants you to collaborate and it doesn't feel like it leads anywhere it kind of feels like a waste of time and mm -hmm. if you if you get people to collaborate and, and it feels beneficial and they're like hey we actually got something really important solved today uh mm -hmm. that has like a really good effect on the whole uh self-organization team autonomy side of scrum yeah yeah, totally. Right. It's like, you know, like, you know, the second there, whenever these things are being introduced, we've been in open space since 2009 at a conference in uh, in New York. We do it every year and now people are asking for it, right? They're saying, like, you're not doing a conference without open space, right? And it's like, no, it's like, okay, we're coming, right? So, um, so it's like, it's like it, it really becomes part of the DNA of a culture. And uh, cool. Another uh, thing you mentioned, uh, Christian, is the something called certificates here i just want to bring this up there's a ton of certifications going on and just recently i spoke with someone who said there's a an incredible number of, I, I forgot the number to be honest i don't want to put in a wrong number idea but an incredible number of people are being certified in scrum number is rising like uh, and we're talking scrum alliance scrum.org all of those certificates are being handed out but zombie scrum is increasing too so those two things are not going necessarily together, right? So one might actually create the behavior on the other side. What's what's your take on that? I, hmm. Both of you guys, but I know Christian is a is a, a scrum a scrum trainer who certifies others like me. Yeah. Yeah. So I can only say positive things about certificates, right? Because I'm a trainer. Yeah. No, um, I think it's interesting. Um, well, you could say that the rise in certifications can also be a sign that more and more people are starting to work with Scrum. And that can also explain why you're seeing more zombie Scrum, because it's zombie Scrum is just a large percentage of all the teams that are working with Scrum. But at the same time, I think there's also something to say for the idea that Sometimes, and we also get those people in our classes, uh, is that the only reason they're there is to get the certificate. And mm -hmm. that's what they need because they can put it on the resume and our companies actually look for those certificates without asking anything else. It's just, do you have that certificate? Okay, then you're a scrum master. But obviously it's much harder to do all these things, to be a good product owner, to be a good developer, to be a good scrum master, to be a good at any of those other roles that you can get certificates for. And sometimes I feel like that message is lost in the certification industry. Mm -hmm. um, and that, could, that can definitely be a problem. And I think that that's what we're seeing in, in some cases. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. yeah. what, what's your take on that, Johannes? Because... Um, so I, well, it, it's, it's difficult to say because, um, for example, I, I'm a certified team coach for the Scrum Alliance and I, I just have to say, well, I can only report really positive things about the whole process. Um, I like what the Scrum Alliance is doing at the moment. And I also like uh, at scrum.org, the, the later PSM classes really need you to reflect and they are essentially a learning journey. And that is something that I find really valuable, at least for me. Uh, I know that through that uh, gaining that certificate 
my effectiveness as an agile coach has really increased just uh, because I had to um, I had to talk about, I had to write about my mental models and just had to reflect on what it is that I'm actually doing because often I feel like we are, um, we're kind of using our intuition, but that it doesn't always help with clients. So for example, if you want to tell them, this is how I look at your situation, or this is a model that we can use to assess your system together. Mm -hmm. um, and this is how I define success. How do you define success? And let's let's uh, see what that means for our work, for example. Mm -hmm. um, that is something that I learned just simply from telling other people about what it is that I'm doing um, while I'm working with a client. And that is really beneficial. So um, maybe the rise in certification should be accompanied by um, the um, encouraging people to pursue these higher certificates that really right. evolve, uh, that really uh, need a lot of effort for people to grow into. Um, and that maybe like the first step should be uh, just clarity on if you get the certificate, it just means you have the, you have read the scrum guide multiple times and that's good. That's, better than what other people do but what you really what you should really strive for is something else um and and so it's difficult but uh i'm not against certificates uh i i have i personally have gained some really valuable experience from them mm -hmm. um, I, I can see why people don't like them so i i don't know, i guess i'm somewhere in between yeah. <laughs> no but yeah. it's i think what you say is a good point like it's not it's not certificates themselves that's the problem but the way in which you get you achieve yeah. them so is it is it a two-day class or a one-day class or even a bit of money that you pay for it or is there a learning journey that's part of actually getting that certificate and that's what you're saying right that's what's so important yeah. you need to have that learning journey yeah exactly. i agree with that absolutely yeah it's like owning a driver's license doesn't make you necessarily a good driver right yeah exactly right. yeah yeah so uh but uh it's also good to for me personally i feel like a certification is good so I know what somebody else knows when they carry around that certificate, right? Because it's like a, I want to say a standard of some sort, but at least like you, you know, there was some, some evidence was uh, about, about the knowledge, et cetera, right? Whereas if you don't have that, it's just like there's, there's uh, probably a lot of conversation about what the standards were, et cetera, and they could be quite different. Towards the end of our podcast here, um, I want to talk a little bit about something you just mentioned about Scrum Guide that was just recently uh, a new scrum guide. I think it just fell exactly on the time when you guys published a book. Uh, <laughs> what I want to hear your uh, your take on this because uh, is is the new scrum guide um, is that good against zombie scrum like the product goal, for example, the the emphasis on the, the the addition of the product goal or the emphasis on the sprint goal, the commitment levels, etc. Are these good things for zombie or against zombie scrum? <laughs> Think? Uh, for me personally uh, it's kind of going in the right direction i don't think um it, it, the scrum guide itself can solve the root cause which is you know people just have different expectations or different uh, imagine different things of what what scrum is and so they kind of bring that view and um, it makes them read the scrum guide in a certain way if they actually read it because a lot mm -hmm. of people don't um, it, it was funny because while we were writing the book, we were informed that there would be a new Scrum Guide and we also knew what was going to be in it. And then the question was, should we change our book? But we kind of realized that most of what we wrote about is was actually compliant. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, Christian, co correct me. But for example, the 
what we um the whole chapter on on self-organization uh that was for us that was one of the most interesting ones to write because we kind of knew what should be in there but we also um we really had to take our time to spell out what that is and what we actually believe because it's it's difficult to grasp and one of the things we uh, started out with was about uh, when we when we started defining self-organization and trying to compare it to self-management right and so what we wrote about was for example that um, the scrum guide actually kind of means self-managing instead of self-organizing mm -hmm. uh, and that was something that was actually addressed later not because of us but it just ha kind of happened at the same time that was really yeah. interesting yeah yeah that was pretty cool um, and i think that in our book we pay a lot of attention to shared goals um, the term product goal we couldn't use that yet in our book because the scrum guide wasn't updated yet right. um but we talk about having a vision a strategy a sense of where the product is going right. um we also talk a lot about sprint goals so that's definitely something that's very mm -hmm. much aligned with the changes that were made but i do agree with johannes and i think that no matter how you write the scrum guide it's not going to prevent zombie scrum it's a bit like um like in a sense i sometimes think like it's a bit like the bible right it should describe what is actually a good and moral person but we're we've been spending two thousand years to figure out what it actually says about how to be a good and moral person no matter how many perspectives you add to it it doesn't actually clarify it you have to talk about it with the people around you and that goes for the scrum guide as well you have to make sense of this within your organization with with your teams and with all the books that are available the blog posts podcasts etc yeah cool guys i want to thank you guys for uh spending a little bit of time with me with the listeners talking about the the new book the zombie scrum survival guide um published by christian fairways johannes shortow and uh, barry overham and it's uh available obviously for to be uh purchased to prevent uh zombie scrum and uh i feel like i feel like we could have another show at some point which is talk about liberating Easily. structures Absolutely. we could take like beside this book we could um continue the conversation about another topic uh but that's for another time how is that great sounds great um and if people are interested in the book they can go to zombiescrum.org uh, we have information mm -hmm. there on where to get the book you can also get it at every bookstore that yeah. you can imagine Awesome. I'm going to make all these links available on the show page, uh, as well as links to you guys and uh, how, how people get in touch with, you know, not beyond the book, things, other things that uh, might be of interest. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Agile FM, the radio for the Agile community. I'm your host, Joe Krebs. If you're interested in more programming and additional podcasts, please go to www.agile.fm. Talk to you soon.